0: Welcome to Gods and Movie Makers, otherwise known as i Got 95 Theses But A Witch Ain't One, the show about how religion and the Bible shape the stories we tell on screen. I'm Joe Scales. And
1: I'm Katie Turner.
0: On this special holiday episode, it's spooky season. What do we fear and why do we fear it? We're unpicking scapegoating, paranoia and subversive narratives. We are back for part two of our Halloween special talking about The Crucible. We just had so much to discuss that we decided to split the episode in two. If you haven't listened to our first part on The Crucible and McCarthyism, we suggest listening to that first and then coming back to this episode. In this part, we'll be delving into the historical background of the Salem Witch Trials. Before we get into that, we'll replay our film summary from the last episode, just in case you've forgotten what it's all about. You will give me your honest confession in my hand, or I cannot keep you from the rope. Which way do you go, mister? Then you will hang! You cannot! I can, and there's your first marvel that I can.
1: Give them no tear. Show honor now, show a stony heart, and sink them with it!
0: Weeps for these. Weeps for corruption. Take it.
1: The Crucible is a 1996 film directed by Nicholas Heitner and adapted for screen by the playwright Arthur Miller. It has an all star cast, including Daniel Day Lewis as John Proctor, Joan Allen as his wife, and Winona Ryder as the chief accuser, Abigail Williams. Based on the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, but inspired by the Cold War and McCarthyism, the film follows a group of girls in Salem who falsely accuse innocent townsfolk of witchcraft after two girls mysteriously fall into some sort of trance-like state, and they also are wanting to divert attention away from their own unseemly behavior, which we will discuss. The anti-witch fervor gripping the town finally comes to an end after 19 people are hanged.
0: Okay, Katie, can you take our listeners through the actual historical background to the Salem Witch Trials?
1: Okay, so the actual Salem Witch Trials. It all begins in February 1692, when 11-year-old Abigail Williams and 9-year-old Elizabeth Parris begin exhibiting some very strange behaviors, including violent fits, and they are acting in trance. A doctor diagnoses them as victims of witchcraft. I just want to make a very quick Mm. note that in the film, they are both aged up. Quite a bit. Yep. So, when asked to name who afflicted them, Abigail and Elizabeth delivered. Mm-hmm. Three women are accused Sarah Good, a poor beggar woman, Sarah Osborne, an unpleasant woman, is how I saw her recorded in one of the texts, um, who rarely attended church, and Tituba, a Native American woman enslaved to the Reverend Paris. Mm-hmm. It's worth noting the low social positioning of all three of these women. Mm-hmm. Although Good and Osborne both deny the charges, Tituba confesses, likely feeling she had no other choice but to say what those in power wanted to hear. Her confession kicks off a frenzy of accusations and wild behavior from many in the community. In the end, over 150 people were accused, including Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter Dorothy. A third of the accused confessed, some as young as six, though confessing didn't necessarily lessen their sentences. Before the craze dies down, 19 people were hanged, one was pressed to death under stones, and five more died in prison. A number of years later, having come to the conclusion that most likely a great injustice had taken place, the Massachusetts Bay Colony began compensating many of the families impacted. In 1710, William Good, who was husband to Sarah and father to Dorothy, wrote the following petition for compensation. To the Honorable Committee, the humble representation William Good, of the damage sustained by him in the year 1692 by reason of the sufferings of his family upon the account of supposed witchcraft. One, my wife Sarah Good was in prison about four months and then executed. Two, a suckling child died in prison before the mother's execution three, a child of four or five years old, and here he's speaking of Dorothy, was imprisoned seven or eight months, and being chained in the dungeon was so hardly used and terrified that she hath ever since been very chargeable, having little or no reason to govern herself. And I leave it unto the Honorable Court to judge what damage I have sustained by such a destruction of my poor family. And so rest your honor's humble servant, William Good, Salem. He was compensated £30, which is roughly the equivalent of £3,000 today, or just under a year's wages at the time, which feels like not even remotely close to enough for such a horror that he endured.
0: Mm -hmm. We should also say that this whole historical episode is quite infamous in the prehistory of the United States. It fits into a wider context of witch trials and panics and witch hunts that were sweeping across Europe. As Katie mentioned, 20 people were executed in Salem and other people died as a result and many, many reputations were tarnished. This is a horrific number, but we should also note that in the context of Western Christendom at this point, it's thought that somewhere between 30 and 60,000 people were executed in witch trials that ran from the 15th century through to the 18th. Although this is mostly uh, women who were being accused and often women making the accusations, men were also accused. And in Scandinavia, men were actually in the slight majority of those accused. And overall around 6,000 men were executed for witchcraft, which makes up maybe 10 to 15 percent of the total. In England, where witchcraft or summoning spirits was considered a capital offence, Matthew Hopkins, a very famous witch finder, was able to essentially get away with these heinous crimes for a long time. He executed many hundreds, all in the backdrop of the English Civil War. So Salem's a relatively short-lived and small episode in the wider context, but it's remained in the popular imagination for quite a long time.
1: So what was all the witch hunting prompted by?
0: So we're a little bit unsure, but historians tend to point to a number of things. So these are social events, the economic context, environmental events, and even personal tragedies. The same period of the Reformation is when Protestantism emerges in its various forms and officially separates from the Roman Catholic Church. There's a lot of concern going on about what is Christianity and who has the right interpretation and who's been led astray and exactly why. So another key episode in this kind of history is the gunpowder plot. This was a failed assassination attempt against the Protestant King James I by a group of Catholics. This itself triggers many more accusations of demonic forces at work and contributes to further to political instability. In Salem, there are a few specific events that occur in the immediate run-up to the trials, so England and France go to war in the colonies refugees end up arriving from quebec nova scotia and northern new england down into the massachusetts bay colony and especially salem village and this puts a strain on the community and its resources Mm. also much of the witch craze period falls within what's known as this little ice age so the decade leading up to the salem trials were particularly cold and this caused issues with crop production also put strain on resources With such a big context, it's really important to say that we can't ever say that this happened for particular reasons. So the right place, the right time, the right cultural context perhaps give rise to what happens. But we should also bear in mind the counterfactual. So... This didn't have to have happened. All the background factors could have been there, but we have to imagine that the outcome was different. We should leave open the possibility for personal choices and decisions and personalities to affect the outcome of these kind of events. And that the progression of history isn't a predetermined mm. narrative governed by certain factors.
1: Absolutely. So, sort of related, I watched a lecture hosted by the Salem Witch Museum where they talked about the links between witch crazes and anti-Semitic uprisings. And also the links between the anti-Semitic Christian construction of the Jew, and I put that in scare quotes because it really had no bearing on reality. And the development of the idea of a witch. And this included, like, what they look like, how they behave, how they're both seen to be in league with the devil, all sorts of things. So we'll link to that on the website, along with a couple of articles that make similar arguments. But I just wanted to give a sort of brief summary of those points, because I, I think it relates to what you've just been talking about, Joe. Mm-hmm. Essentially, periods of increased anti-Semitic persecution and violence against Jews were often triggered by similar things that came to trigger witch crazes. So, for example, when the Black Death ravaged Europe in the mid-14th century, killing roughly 30% of the population, Jews were blamed for spreading the disease and poisoning wells, mm-hmm. Witches also would come to be accused of spreading disease. And then we also have things like tragic, mysterious deaths of small children in a few towns, which created the really horrible blood libel that is still with us today, and that's the accusation that Jews murder and consume Christian babies. And if we think about the trope of witches murdering children in stories like Hansel and Gretel, and we actually see this in The Crucible, some women are accused of witchcraft in relation to infant death in the community, right?
0: Exactly, yeah. There's one character in the movie and in the play she loses a number of children shortly after childbirth Mm. and she ends up accusing the nurse as involved in this
1: right and so it's not just that the nurse is involved it's that the nurse must be a witch yeah so i just i find this really interesting i hadn't really put together previously the idea of the blood libel and what comes to eventually be a kind of characteristic accusation of witchcraft
0: So I just want to touch on a point here that's kind of fascinating or I've just thought of Mm. that. A lot of our favorite monsters, when we dig down into the history of interpretation, they end up related to things like anti-Semitism. They
1: do, yeah. So
0: I'm also thinking of vampires. Mm-hmm. So vampires ruined, witches ruined. We're coming for you next, zombies.
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's so mu- there's so much that we could talk about in the links between anti-Semitism and all of this other stuff. But I re- I really wanted to bring it up here because your comment about the fact that scapegoating doesn't necessarily flow from difficult events made me think of this argument anti-Semitism isn't a foregone conclusion, just like witch crazes were not a foregone conclusion. People didn't have to blame all these terrible things on actual Jewish people. Even still, though, it does strike me as interesting that by the time witch hunting really kicks off in England, no Jewish communities remained there. They were expelled in 1290. And the same goes for France, where they were expelled in 1394. So perhaps part of the reason witches come to be blamed in so many places so widespread is because the previous scapegoat was no longer there to take the blame. Mm. Can we talk about the magic itself?
0: Yeah, let's talk.
1: All right. So John Hale, who was a Puritan minister who is present for much of the trials, and we see him in the crucible as well. He wrote that Abigail and Elizabeth had been using an egg and a glass to try and determine their future husband's occupations. And this is known as an English method of divination.
0: Mm-hmm. Just to be clear, we're talking about the historical accounts rather than their depiction in the play and film.
1: Yeah, so I'm focusing just here on the historical record. So the girls look into the glass and they reportedly saw a coffin or something that frightens them so much that it triggers whatever ill behavior set the whole thing off. As soon as Tituba confesses, however, the magic becomes associated also with her and we'll talk more about this in a bit. And this is a far worse situation given Titua's background. So here's what I would like you to explain, Joe. Why should the type of magic or the purveyor of the magic differ? Isn't all magic equally bad?
0: Yeah, so we'll be retreading some of the discussion we had in our Green Knight episode from season one where we talk a bit about authorized and unauthorized magic. So please go and check that out. But generally, the framing particularly in the modern world or emerging Christendom, is a distinction between magic and religion or religious practice. And this essentially is a distinction between something that is centrally permitted and something that is outside of that. Early Christian texts especially do a lot of work to separate magicians from those who work with divine authorization. So Jesus is not really framed as a necromancer when he raises Lazarus from the dead, but he is the divine using some authorized miracle system. And the disciples are not magicians, but they've been gifted with the Holy Spirit, which helps them to perform these miracles. And we even have Simon Magus, where we perhaps get the word magic from, wants to learn the secret of the disciples because he practices magic. So there's a very clear distinction being enforced from these texts that want there to be a distinction. So historian Shaili Patel writes that, Quote, ancient authors invented the idea that the miracles of Christians possessed inherent moral superiority over non-Christian magic creating false distinctions that linger today. So I think we see this clearly in the treatment of Tichiba and we see how this distinction is also linked with racism. So we're going to look at that development now.
1: Before we get into that historical development, could you describe the opening scenes of the movie? Hmm. That's where we really see Tichiba looking like, if not necessarily the instigator, she's definitely sort of the leader of this illicit behavior that the girls are caught engaging in. And this is very different from the historical record.
0: Yeah, so we should distinguish on three levels of what's going on. So we have historical record accounts and how Tituba is linked into this. On the one hand, we have the play where in... Almost all the elements we see on screen are described, but the viewer or the audience is often left uncertain over what exactly has happened. Mm. And then we have the scene itself in the film. So the film opens and we have the girls of Salem, essentially many of them running into the woods. And Tichuba seems to have organized something. There's a pot with maybe some stew in and they brought things for her and she's got her arms in the air and she's kind of chanting. And there seems to be some kind of magic going on where the girls are saying the names of boys and men in the village, presumably who they want to fall in love with them. So that seems to be explicitly depicted on screen, something that Tichuba is organizing or at least guiding them in this practice. Mm.
1: And we see there's like a frog in the pot on the fire, right? Or something, like something about a frog.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And Abigail has a. a sack with a a black cockerel in it which is another one of these kind of motifs that crops Mm. up again and again historic witchcraft association
1: yeah and then like eventually in the scene while these things are happening Abigail drinks the blood of the cockerel Mm. and is she the one who one of them strips off naked she also strips down yeah
0: we actually see Mm -hmm. her do it this is all kind of alluded to in Miller's play the Reverend Paris actually says he sees a dress he thinks he sees a dress hanging in a tree or lying on the ground but there's no suggestion that he's actually seen anyone stripped down it's very indirect but you're really shown all of this happening at the outset of the film
1: yeah yeah so in the film we see the reverend paris kind of sneaking through the woods and watching the girls as they gather around the fire and dance and Mm -hmm, then mm -hmm they notice that they're being watched and they all run off.
0: Yeah, they run and scatter and this is when, you know, you can imagine Paris is going to do something to mm-hmm. punish them. And then this is when his daughter, Elizabeth, or Betty, as they refer to her, collapses and won't won't wake up. And this is how the play opens, that she's lying in her bed almost the right. day after and won't won't wake.
1: So we kind of get the idea that the reason these girls, these two girls are in a kind of stupor is because of fear that they've already been caught. And that's a bit different from the perception we get in the historical record where it's whatever magic they were doing that caused their fear. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of the play a bit better, I think, where you don't actually see any of this play out mm-hmm. and you only hear what people are saying after the fact. Because I think that it puts the audience in a similar position to the villagers of not really knowing what's true or not. Whereas in the film, because mm-hmm. we see it all happen, we know the girls dance around the fire. We know that there was a frog or a toad like thrown into this witchy brew. We know that somebody drank mm-hmm. blood. We know that somebody stripped off naked. Um, we know that Paris saw them. So
0: yeah to an audience, this, this looks suspicious at least. And then they, they really hide yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's
1: more confirmation also. And so when people are arguing later on, we are, we can reflect back and know what's true and not true in the arguments. Whereas mm-hmm. in the play, because you haven't seen any of that happen, you don't really know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I like that you delivered the information secondhand. It's interesting that the, the play, perhaps by virtue of its 4X structure, doesn't give a scene to this but.
1: Right. Yeah. It's interesting that Miller made the choice to change that for the film. And mm-hmm. I think maybe, maybe you shouldn't have anyway.
0: But talking of Miller's changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To let's things. get back to Tituba. Yeah.
1: So when we see Tituba and hear her. She's very clearly an Afro-Caribbean woman mm. and the magic that we see depicted is intended to look like voodoo magic, but this is like mm-hmm. a Western Hollywood conception of what voodoo magic is and has absolutely no bearing on actual voodoo. So the historical woman, Tituba, who was enslaved to the Paris family along with her husband, we don't actually... Yeah, we don't yeah, see we him. don't see a husband anywhere. Yeah,
0: there's no indication no. she's married in the play or the film as far as I recall.
1: The original documentation from the 17th century, Tituba is referred to as an Indian woman, which we really should understand to mean indigenous Native Americans, indigenous people were also enslaved to European colonizers, particularly before the transatlantic slave trade reaches its peak. One 17th century document calls her Mr. Paris's Indian woman, and another calls her an Indian woman named Tituba. She's referenced in quite a number of places in this way. Mm. Uh, Her name is inconsistently spelled, but what is consistent is this idea of her being Indian. She's accused of assisting Abigail and Elizabeth in their English divination. The first suggestion that we get that she was actually the one responsible for the magic comes centuries later from Charles Upham, Mm. who wrote a two-volume book that Miller references when he is researching for his play. Upham suggests that the Salem witchcraft may have originated in Tituba's native materials. What those are or why he thinks this, we have no idea. So a year later, the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow changes Tituba's race in his drama Giles Corey of the Salem Farms. Wadsworth writes that Tituba's father was, quote, all black and fierce. He was an Obi-Man and taught her magic. So here we have the first explicit reference to African-based magic. Mm-hmm. So this depiction of her as half-black and a purveyor of African magic is subsequently repeated by a number of other historians. And in 1897, philosopher and historian John Fiske embeds this misnomer further in his history of New France and New England. Fiske described Tituba and her husband as, quote, two colored servants whom Paris had brought with him from the West Indies. Interesting servants there and not slaves. Anyway, the man was known as John Indian, the hag Tituba, who passed for his wife, was half Indian and half Negro. Their intelligence was of a low grade, but it sufficed to make them experts in palmistry, fortune-telling, magic, second sight, and incantations. This is a deeply racist characterization that invents yet more details, including the idea that Tituba's marriage is fake. And maybe this is actually what contributes to the husband being dropped off entirely Mm -hmm. from the depiction. Subsequent historians don't adopt Fisk's editions, but a number of creatives do, such as Marion Starkey, who wrote The Devil in Massachusetts, and then later Miller in The Crucible. So I think what we are seeing is a distancing, intentional or not, of the magic that's performed in Salem, what we know to have been a sort of playful English magic. This progression in Tituba is creating this distance from a white Christian power structure and then resetting that magic into the more clearly unacceptable realm of non-white heathen. So it's really re-inscribing magic as counter to normative acceptable behavior. Mm. Or to think of it another way, in the post-Civil War reception of the Salem Witch Trials, it has been preferable to associate the magic with a Black woman and African heritage than with English cultural tradition or even that of Native American people. So I've drawn a lot of this background from a journal article entitled The Metamorphosis of Tituba by Chadwick Hansen. And Hansen says that although Arthur Miller has been a man of almost aggressive goodwill, and the last person one would suspect of being a racist, at least in any ordinary sense of the word, Miller makes Tituba's magic as well as her race blacker. So Hansen is particularly critical of the scene depicting Tituba's confession, and I'd like to talk about that for a bit. So perhaps we should describe that as well.
0: Yep. So in the film, we see quite a coercive practice of getting Tituba to confess, which includes beating and an increasing number of charges that are thrown at her. And one woman, Anne Putnam, who we kind of noted before as the woman who lost many children in childbirth or just shortly after giving birth, accuses Tituba of making Abigail drink her baby's blood. And Tituba eventually relents after some particularly forceful lashing and begins framing what she's saying based on the expectations of those torturing her. They repeatedly ask about the devil, so she acquiesces, that she didn't want to do his bidding. They ask her to name other witches, and though she at first denies knowledge of any others, she eventually agrees that there are. And she's asked if Sarah Good is with the devil, so she says, yes, Sarah Good is with the devil. In the play, as Reverend Hale is questioning Tituba, Reverend Paris, the man who enslaves her, says, you will confess yourself, or I will take you out and whip you to your death. And Thomas Putnam, a wealthy landowner, also present, followed this up with, This woman must be hanged, she must be taken and hanged. At this point, Tichy Ber, the stage direction say, is terrified, falls to her knees, and says, I tell him, I don't desire to work for him, sir. So, there is all this threatening language, but we don't actually see the physical violence shown in the film. Yeah, we might question which is worse. If we go back further to the examination documents from the original Salem Witch Trials, there's something I found quite interesting, and I'm using the Viking Critical Library edition of the Crucible with text and criticism. So in her questioning from Reverend Hale, he asks Tituba, why does she hurt these children? And she says that she doesn't hurt them. He then asks who does, and she says the devil, for all she ought to know, she has a slight admission. Then there are further questions on who else is with the devil. This is where Goody Osborne and Sarah Good are implicated. And Reverend Hale again revisits the question, but did you not hurt them? And at this point, she says yes, but she won't hurt them anymore. So even in the short excerpt, her story of what's happening is changing. We see that she is initially saying she doesn't hurt these children. And then after quite intense questioning, this shifts. And we see in these details that Potentially, they're being created because this is what the questioner wants to hear. And with each step, she's saying in the manner of what else can she say to get get out of this situation? It's quite horrific reading through this. I imagine the investigators maybe thought they were trying to find the truth, but their methods are essentially that they're trying to find very specific answers. And the witnesses, as well as the accused, are being driven to supply these answers. It's also quite important to hear that later on what happens to Tituba, she remains in the Boston jail, had really poor living conditions because Samuel Parrish refused to pay the fees and she's released after 13 months. She's sold to an unknown person. And then in an interview with Robert Califf for his collection of papers on the trials, she says that Paris had beaten a confession out of her and then coached her on what to say and how to say it when she was questioned we see all these elements of violence, false confession, the coaching of the accused and witnesses to say what the court system, this system wants to hear.
1: Yeah, so we don't actually see in the crucible what happens to Tituba, the fact that she ends up spending these 13 months in jail because Paris abandons her there. But it is really interesting to hear that The actual historical woman, Tutuba, confirmed that she was beaten and that the confession was coerced. Mm -hmm. I guess it makes sense that Arthur Miller shows more of that because it's not Mm -hmm. in the original historical record. I have a couple thoughts listening to you. First... Listening to you compare the historical record to the play and then the film, it's interesting to hear how much of the dialogue in the play text is taken from the record itself and then interwoven with fiction. It reminds me a lot of the Joan of Arc films we discussed last season with Laura O'Brien. Thought number two is the obvious parallel to the intended one and the way people under McCarthyism were manipulated and threatened into providing a series of predetermined answers, but actually... This is just a much bigger issue in our justice system far beyond McCarthyism, that of forced or coerced confessions. There have been plenty of people who have been convicted on no evidence at all except for a coerced confession. And because we're talking about Titipa's race, The case that really jumped to the front of my mind was that of the Central Park Five. And this was in 1989, five children, mostly Black when Hispanic, were convicted of violently raping a jogger in Central Park on nothing but forced confessions that were taken without their legal guardians or any sort of counsel present. And that actually brings me back to the discussion point, which is this representation of Tituba. So, I really appreciate Hansen's criticism of Miller's incorporation of this racial distortion of Tituba in The Crucible, but whether or not Miller intended it, I'd like to consider that perhaps... Having Tituba as an Afro-Caribbean woman actually made the parallels with the 1950s context that Miller was critiquing more palpable than if she had been sort of represented accurately as a Native American or Indigenous woman. In the film, they've beaten a confession from Tituba, and they continue to berate her for more, demanding she name names, and she responds with a deflection. And I think that we should just play the scene so you can hear Charlene Woodard as Tituba deliver the rest. How many times he
0: bid me kill you, Mr. Paris? Kill me? Rise of Tituba and cut that man through dust. But him tell me. I said, no, devil. I don't hate that man. Him say, Tituba, you work for me. I make you free. I give you pretty dress to wear, and I put you way up high in the air, and you go fly back home to Barbados. And I say, no, devil, you lie. And then him come to me one stormy night, and him say, did you, look? I has white people belong to me and i look i look and there was sarah good i knew it God oh, bless
1: you tichva aye and could you i knew it oh. they were midwives to me three times and my babies shriveled in their hair Something feels so pointed about what she says, like she's deliberately messing with them, these men and women who consider themselves so righteous and godly, but who yet continents literally owning another human being. The devil promises her freedom to return her to her home. How is that not the good and moral thing in this context? So by using the devil, Tichiba is able to voice her actual desires. It gives her license to say the unsayable. In the 1950s, much of the U.S. was still segregated. Black Americans had been living through human rights abuse after human rights abuse. And so some, quite understandably, turned to an ideology that promotes equality among all people, irrespective of race or class. And yet that ideology is criminalized and it's cast as this great immorality poisoning the noble U.S., the very nation that is segregating Black people. So... There's a real tension between what is actually good Mm -hmm. and what is actually evil.
0: This all fits into a context of a very particular kind of justice system in The Crucible. We should talk about what kind of evidence is admitted. And one of these pieces of evidence is Tituba's forced confession. But there are other kinds of evidence that also further this chilling depiction of a courtroom gone wrong. So in one scene, we see Sarah Osborne. So she's one of the first women named. She's convicted after a group of girls claim she is hurting them in court. Somehow, spectrally or non-physically, Everyone can see that she isn't touching them. And even though she denies this, this is taken as evidence of her wrongdoing.
1: Yeah, so this is spectral evidence, which definitely needs explaining and defining, but it's probably worth mentioning the broader legal context. The first English Witchcraft Act defining witchcraft and making it a crime punishable by death was passed in 1542. It's then repealed and then reissued a few times after that. The second time is in 1603, when the Act Against Conjuration, Witchcraft, and Dealing with Evil and Wicked Spirits was passed under James I. So this act clearly defines witchcraft, including making a distinction between minor and major offenses, and it elucidates magic relationship to the devil— I'm just going to quote from part of the act when they say that what is forbidden is the use, practice, or exercise, any invocation or conjuration of any evil and wicked spirit, or anyone who consults, covenants with, entertains, employs, feeds, or rewards any evil and wicked spirit to or for any intent or purpose, or take up any dead man, woman, or child out of his, her, or their grave. So employing or using in any manner of witchcraft, sorcery, charm, or enchantment, so anybody who does this will suffer pains of death as a felon or felons and shall lose the privilege and benefit of clergy and sanctuary. So in 1641, a statute is then adopted into law by the Massachusetts Bay Company that is clearly drawing on this English law. And that statute says, if any man or woman be a witch, that is hath or consulteth with a familiar spirit, they shall be put to death. And then it cites a number of biblical passages, Exodus 22, 18, Leviticus 20, 27, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 11. The first one cited, the passage in Exodus is, you shall not tolerate a sorceress, or in the King James version, you shall not suffer a witch to live.
0: Yeah. It's really important to say, and again, as we mentioned earlier, this all fits within a framework of authorized and unauthorized practices from the point of view of the authors of these texts. And we can pretty much say the same for worship of specific deities. So it's permissible and encouraged to worship the God of Israel, but not Baal or some other deity. So people were clearly doing these things in the world in which these biblical texts are written. And the authors of these texts that have been passed down to us were not happy about it. I think that only later this becomes a really clear binary between authorised and unauthorised. But at the point when these texts are being written, I'm not so sure it's a straightforwardly binary in this sense. There's probably a whole lot of grey area. It's
1: really helpful because I think it's really important that we remember the biblical context and the way that the Bible was employed in the justice system because the system is deeply Christian at this time. It's also important to note that there was no presumption of innocence in the way that we have in our justice systems today. And Judge Danforth, who is one of the characters in The Crucible, explains really well in a courtroom scene in the movie how and why there is no presumption of innocence. So, yeah, here's a clip.
0: Consider now, in an ordinary crime Witnesses are called to prove guilt or innocence, but witchcraft is an invisible crime. Therefore, who may witness it? The witch, of course, and the victim. Now, we cannot expect the witch to accuse herself, can we? Therefore, we may only rely upon her victims, and the children certainly testify. Therefore, what is left for a lawyer to bring out? We just want to note that Thomas Danforth was acting governor in 1692 and his name appears once in the court records, but he doesn't really seem to have had much involvement and his character is a confabulation of a couple of other actual people. And in fact, it's probably also really important to note that Danforth is described in a letter in October of 1692 as among a group Of those several about the bay, men for understanding judgments and piety that do utterly condemn the said proceedings and do freely deliver their judgment. So unfairly, the historical Danforth was probably not happy about the proceedings. Yeah. But he's depicted as one of the chief orchestrators or at least enablers of what's going on.
1: Yeah, in The Crucible, he's like super into them. So yeah, yeah, Yeah. important to recognize that difference between the historical figure himself and his depiction because it seems to be quite opposite. But thank you to the fictional Judge Danforth for explaining the lack of the (laughs) presumption of innocence. So guilt was instead presumed, and the court relied on three kinds of evidence to prove it. The first was confession. The second was testimony of two eyewitnesses to the act of witchcraft. And the third is spectral evidence. The Salem Witch Museum refers to uslegal.com to define spectral evidence, and it is there defined as, quote, Witness testimony that the accused person's spirit or spectral shape appeared to him or her in a dream at the time the accused person's physical body was at another location. It was accepted in the courts during the Salem witch trials. The evidence was accepted on the basis that the devil and his minions were powerful enough to send their spirits or specters to pure religious people in order to lead them astray. And really interestingly, a New Hampshire Supreme Court case in 1980 Eighty-two references this a few times because one of the dissenting justices in that case compares evidence admitted in this 1982 case to the spectral evidence admitted at Salem. And he writes that spectral evidence was the, quote, sort of proof against which there is no disproof, and that it was accepted in courts not as factual proof of the psychological condition of the accuser, but instead of the behavior of the accused. So the provincial governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony allows judges to hear spectral evidence, but it was not unique to Salem or to the colonies. It had been used during the Spanish Inquisition. It was used in witch trials in the UK. By the time we get to Salem, people are actually starting to push against it. There had been a witch trial a number of years earlier in Bury St. Edmunds in England in 1662, where there is concern voiced about the the admission of spectral evidence. And it's again challenged in Salem and it's eventually dropped halfway through the witch trials, after which the court turns almost exclusively to signed confessions. And we see that happen in the crucible.
0: Yeah, and it's important to say that there's a kind of a foundational system of understanding where this kind of evidence makes sense. And it's only really intelligible from a social, historical, and theological context in which these trials are conducted. So if you were... In 1692, perhaps going to question the idea that spectral projection by witches was impossible, then you're undermining a whole lot of other beliefs that are associated with what witches can do. And we do see people questioning this, but you're not in a situation where, as the accused, you're in a position to question this, right? Mm -hmm. So we should think of this particular and quite obviously unjust method of introducing evidence to a courtroom as something that fits into quite a specific context. And we can appeal to real-world phenomena like sleep paralysis that might offer some explanations for why people may have experienced something like spectral uh, projection or whatever this is. But we have to understand a larger framework of belief that permits this evidence and its explanation, particularly in a legal setting.
1: Yeah, and this is something that Miller himself talks about that we really need to understand the context like the way people were thinking in the 17th century in order to understand the parallels that he is trying to build to McCarthyism. And unfortunately, a number of people didn't quite get that in the initial reception when the crucible was first staged in 1953. Some criticized it as a flawed parable of McCarthyism, Ilya Kazan had directed two of Miller's previous plays, including Death of a Salesman, but the two had fallen out over McCarthyism and Kazan's testimony before the HUAC in 1952 because Kazan cooperated. Miller refused to speak to him after that, and Ilya Kazan's wife said that Arthur Miller had gotten the comparison with Salem incorrect because there were never any witches, but there were certainly communists
0: a number of reviews that she collected in the aforementioned Viking Critical Library edition of The Crucible edited by Jared Wheels are included and these often include the notion that while witchcraft was simply a paranoid phenomenon who was seeking victims who were entirely innocent of that which they were accused there were real flesh and blood communists alive and active in the 1950s in the states there are a number of these reviews included but generally the theme touches upon this Miller, over time, responded to this criticism and his thoughts clearly developed as he wrote about this. But by the year 2000, he was able to fully state something that seems very apparent to historians of religion. Mm. So this is from a Guardian and Observer online article on June 17th, 2000. There are some really, really good explanations here. So Miller reflects on equating this red hunt, as he calls it, but communist McCarthyist scare. With the witch hunt, Miller says, quote, anyone standing up in the Salem of 1692 and denying that witches existed would have faced immediate arrest, the hardest interrogation and possibly the rope. Every authority not only confirmed the existence of witches, but never questioned the necessity of executing them. It became obvious that to dismiss witchcraft was to forego any understanding of how it came to pass that tens of thousands had been murdered as witches in Europe. To dismiss any relation between that episode and the hunt for subversives was to shut down an insight into not only the similar emotions, but also the identical practices of both officials and victims. There were witches, if not to most of us, then certainly to everyone in Salem. And there were communists. So, this really, for me, sums up how we have to understand people in the past. They Mm -hmm. occupied very different social contexts and belief systems. Miller perhaps is slightly flattening the historical reality of how the ideology around witchcraft existed, but the overriding principle is the same. People really believed there were witches Mm -hmm. and people were possibly doing things that could be identified in the system as witchcraft. So this historical parallel Where there is a externalized threat that the authorities have to deal with and the people who are responsible for that externalized threat are themselves untrustworthy and they are obviously guilty because why else would they be before this court or committee?
1: Yeah. I came across a similar sort of comment on the importance of understanding the actual mindset of people in the 17th century to really, truly make sense of Arthur Miller's parable, if we are to call it that. So this comes from Christina Stevick, who's the artistic director of the Cry Innocent Project, and she had put together an immersive theater experience inviting audiences to participate in a mock trial from Salem. And she says, what I would hope is that a person who has had 45 minutes to flirt with a 17th century English mindset would understand why a person might accuse somebody of witchcraft. And then she she goes on to say that this is important so that we can learn from this period of history. If you dismiss it as oh, it's just a whole bunch of superstitious people getting caught up in a nonsense, then you fail to see the really, really, really important parallels that Miller is so, I think, eloquently communicating Mm. to us Mm -hmm. through, through The Crucible.
0: Absolutely. I think that this is where the film has quite a good strength Mm -hmm. because the film is very good at showing sometimes quite petty scores that are being settled with these accusations. So everyone has a reason to accuse someone else of witchcraft and many, many people do for their own personal Mm -hmm. benefit. Whatever there is, there is a reason for people to do this. And one thing I just want to touch on Mm -hmm. ever so briefly is the depiction of the girls in Miller's play Mm -hmm. and in the film Abigail Williams' phenomenal performance by Winona Ryder is absolutely vilified, has no redemption, but she is operating in a system, at least... On stage and on screen where she's playing a game of accusation, let's say, that that is completely rooted in the circumstances and ideologies of her time. And she's playing it better than everyone else because she's able to get away with getting what she wants out of the system, even though she is in one of the lowest hierarchical positions. She's been chucked out of a household as a maid. She is a woman. unwed. She's a young woman. And she doesn't really seem to have the protection of a paternal household. So she's with her uncle who distrusts her at the very least. So this system is one, she's able to exploit it to her benefit mm-hmm. and ultimately gets away. And on the other hand, her, let's say, interaction with what might be identified as witchcraft is also a way of her expressing perhaps some agency in a system that utterly deprives her of most agency. Mm-hmm. So there is a sympathetic way you can view the girls in particular you also see this in this great scene where mary who is the current maid servant of the proctors she's going to aid john proctor and confess that she's made it all up and essentially the girls and abigail turn on her accuse her of witchery and you see mary flip back she recognizes she has to join the group and the accusations to save herself they are put in a position where they cannot have any alternative they just have to almost ride the lightning to Mm -hmm. survive
1: it's such an important thing to highlight the idea that a system that is built to be very exclusionary can eventually be manipulated and used by those who are being excluded to condemn those who are doing the exclusion as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think The Crucible does a wonderful job of highlighting that. And also the way that opportunists can use paranoia to their own benefit. And I think that's best demonstrated in the character of Thomas Putnam, who uses the craze to accuse people that hold land holdings bordering his And then he's able to scoop up their land. Yeah. Just one last comment on the depiction of the girls, and this is a slight criticism of Arthur Miller. Because Arthur Miller creates this narrative where Abigail and John Proctor had had some sort of affair, which we never see, but we do see it as a motivation for Abigail. Mm -hmm. She wants to accuse John Proctor's wife, effectively, get rid of her so she can have Mm -hmm. John Proctor to herself. I mean, obviously, this is completely invented. Arthur Miller seems to be drawing from his own experiences of marital infidelity But what it ends up doing, I think, quite negatively, is perpetuating this idea that women who make accusations against men, particularly powerful men or notable men, when they make accusations of some sort of sexual misconduct, are seen sometimes as simply being out for revenge or, you know, they're doing it because they're lovesick or because they have been spurned or something like this. and. It is a common trope used to discredit women who more, 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 more often than not, there is truth to their accusations of sexual misconduct. So I think that the crucible, unfortunately, plays into this, this very damaging trope that exists in our broader culture, in which such accusations are just Mm -hmm. women being cruel rather than men being violent. Yeah. Anyway.
0: And I think we just have to. We have to sit with that because Miller ultimately makes John the hero and Abigail the villain.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: So, so we we don't necessarily have to go along with that characterization in our reading of the play. And this is something that, yeah, reinforces this very, very harmful stereotype.
1: Anyway, I hope that we've given people some good food for thought on The Crucible on this lovely Halloween. Yep. I feel like we could go on chatting about it for ages, Joe.
0: Oh, yeah, there's so much we haven't covered, as we said up top. Please check out some of the resources over at our website. And with that, let's go. So I'm going to ask you to pitch us a scaring.
1: (laughs) In our great tradition of pairing things that are not accessible for all... (laughs) um...
0: (laughs) Oh... Sorry.
1: I am going to... Well, actually, I'll do two pairings. So one pairing I'm going to say that this is probably a little bit more accessible is watch the Crucible drink a pumpkin ale, get into the autumny spirit, tap into New England. Hmm. It is becoming more accessible in the UK to find pumpkin ale Hmm. and more widespread in the US as well. I have no idea about Norway, Joe. You'll have to (laughs) hunt and let us know. But it's got like autumn taste
0: okay okay taste
1: of fall my other pairing is going to be a visit to salem
0: okay yeah yeah. this
1: is something that i did on a school trip in eighth grade i think it was we went on a trip to boston and Mm. on the way we stopped in salem massachusetts and they have a museum the salem wax museum it is a hilariously small quaint and camp museum they have dioramas, like life-size dioramas, through a big room, each one depicting a different scene. A little light comes down onto the diorama of wax figures and then tells a little narrative, and then that light turns off. And then a light comes on in the next one, and you see the life-size mm. wax figures. And if anyone has seen, there's an episode of Gilmore Girls where they build a wax museum about the Gilmore Girls town of Stars Hollow, and it's exactly... It's like somebody who wrote Gilmore Girls had been to Salem, visited Mm -hmm. this museum, and then was like, how do we incorporate this into an episode? So it's just like that. It's a really adorable little town. Anyway, they really lean into fall and Halloween, as you could imagine that they would. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will say it hasn't. I've been back to Salem since my school field trip. (laughs) So Mm. the town is still cute and quaint and uh, loves Halloween.
0: Yes, and perhaps maybe it's a good thing to also suggest attending official events rather than doing anything quite ghost like going to a graveyard where some of the victims might have been buried, because this is also a oh, thing I think yeah. people do. Yeah, I
1: mean, I mean, maybe the Salem Wax Museum is kind of already doing that in the way that they've decided to depict everything, mm. but I'll leave that to you to decide yeah. on your visit. Okay. Is this appropriate?
0: Yes. <laughs> Okay. So what do you pair? Oh, uh, so I'm taking seriously the seasonal pun and thinking about scaring. Okay. I think the 2015 film The Witch, directed by Robert Eggers, it was his directorial debut is set in the same era an outcast family goes into the woods Hmm. we'll probably discuss this again in the future but it is a horror film it is very horrific in places definitely so go in with that full knowledge but this is a great scaring in a very similar theme just a brilliant film so uh, i would recommend that and i will report back about norwegian activities and pumpkin beer
1: i'll look forward to hearing about that all right, that's all from us on this Halloween special. Hope you have all had a very enjoyable spooky season. We'll catch you next time.
0: That's our show today. Gods and Movie Makers is researched and produced by us, Joe Scales and Katie Turner, and supported by listeners like you. Our music is by Styled Kid. As always, you can follow us on our social platforms, but we'd recommend heading over to our website, godsandmoviemakers.com, where you can donate to us or subscribe for additional content. Thanks for listening.